Yo, this is Andrew Claven telling you to stop whatever you're doing and check out the latest episode of Daily Wire Backstage. Jeremy Boring, Ben Shapiro, Matt Walsh, and what's his name? What's his name? Michael Knowles. And yours truly discuss Biden's vaccine mandate, the Texas heartbeat law, and the future of the GOP as the Dems continue to author disaster after disaster. Trust me, you don't want to miss this one. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Daily Wire Backstage, We Do Not Comply edition. I'm Jeremy Boring, known around here as the God King, lowercase g, lowercase k, and we're glad you've tuned in. It got weird. <laughs> Will President Biden's call for a vaccine mandate finally wake people up to the tyrannical leanings of this radical leftist administration? Does the Texas heartbeat law mean we may see an end to Roe v. Wade in the near future? Is it too soon to count on the GOP winning big in 2022 as the Dems continued to author disaster after disaster? None of that was funny. Joining me to discuss all of this and more is the Ben Shapiro, the Andrew Clavin, the Matt Walsh, and the Michael Knowles. For tonight's show, Daily Wire members can ask questions in the chat box at dailywire.com, and we will be answering them throughout the night. So please head over and subscribe. Joe Biden announced last week that he's weaponizing the federal agency OSHA to force all companies with over 100 employees to either mandate vaccines or test their employees for COVID at least once per week. I think it goes without saying that this is one of the most tyrannical overreaches of government power Americans have seen in my lifetime. And here at The Daily Wire, we plan to fight it. As we prepare for a battle of epic proportions, we're calling on you to help us fight this obscene and tyrannical mandate. If you will join us at dailywire.com right now by becoming a member, you'll be giving us the resources that we need to take this all the way to the Supreme Court if necessary. I really feel like if I say, take it to the Supreme Court, the light should flash and thunder should <laughs> Head over to dailywire.com slash subscribe and use the promo code do not comply because we won't be. Uh, you'll get 25% off. Americans have been putting up with this crap, ceding freedom after freedom to this authoritarian bureaucracy in the name of public health for long enough. So please stand with us at The Daily Wire and perhaps most importantly, help us stand for the rights of all American citizens. I mean, there's a good self-promotion there, but this is like the big story probably in politics of maybe in my lifetime is this overreach by the president. It's been, it's been building, I mean, even under Trump, the, the response of our, uh, of our government to the pandemic has been so overwrought uh, and has just at every and the use turn, of administrative agencies to do it right. The use I mean, of administrative the, the agencies CDC so overwrought, giving eviction moratoriums to start under Trump. That's right, right. But 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 this is the third straight president who said, "I don't have the constitutional ability to do this," and then, and then I'm it. just going to do it. Right. Yeah. We we had that with DACA. We had this with the CDC, and now we've had it with Biden several times in the past couple of weeks. That's right. right? He's just accelerating the pace. So he said. The Supreme Court said you're not allowed to do that with the CDC. And then he's like, well, I agree. And then five seconds later, he turned around and tried to do it again with the CDC and the eviction moratorium. Here he said a bajillion times that you are not allowed to use the federal government to cram down a vaccine mandate. But Ben, then, then, he, then his patience began to wear thin. His patience began to wear thin. That's the part that's so unbelievably tyrannical about all of this is, who the hell are you? Your patience with me is wearing thin? I pay your salary. I yeah. mean, like the, the, he is my employee. Like this notion that his patience with me is wearing thin. He's not my father. He doesn't get to tell, he's not my wife. He doesn't get to tell me that his patience is wearing thin with, with the American people. And the thing about this, again, is I've said this a thousand times. This has nothing to do with whether you're pro or anti-vaccine. This has to do with whether you are pro or anti-liberty, right? Yeah. The, the question is not, like I am as pro-vaccine as is possible for a human to be. 
I, I've made this clear over and over and over. I've been pro-vaccine since before. It's cool to be pro-vaccines. And the, the fact that this president of the United States is using an OSHA rule, a vaguely worded OSHA delegation of power in order to cram down an emergency temporary decree yeah. on 100 million Americans. That, let's, let's be real about this. It really is not even about the employers. It's about the employees because he's going after us as a proxy for going after our employees. Yeah, if course. we refuse to, if, if, if our employees won't take the test and don't want to get vaccinated, we have to fire them. Well, he's, right? that's, that's he the actual. Has, you know, he, he's, found a, he's found a loophole around the fact that he doesn't have the, the power as president to force the citizenry to become vaccinated. As he admitted. But he may have the power to force us to force the citizenry right. to be you know, vaccinated. And it's not about our freedom. Here's the president. This is not about freedom or personal choice. It's about protecting yourself and those around you. The people you work with. The people you care about. The people you love. My job as president is to protect all Americans. So tonight... Unbelievable. His just, job as president uh, is protect uh, uh, all Americans. Protect this protecting people thing. I, I thought the vaccine Correct. is what's supposed to protect <laughs> you. So this is, this is the contradiction that no one has ever been able to satisfactorily answer. If the vaccine works, then you don't need to force it on anybody else to protect yourself. And the message seems to be from the like the 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 COVID cult that um, well you need to get the vaccine to protect me because I got the vaccine. And I don't trust it to protect me. <laughs> yeah. And so there's there's a real disconnect there, which doesn't make a lot of sense. He said, to me. He said in the same contradiction, speech, though, those two, those the two things, things the simultaneously. Thing that drives me crazy. The thing that is so frustrating to me about this is that it's all openly a joke. We've got yeah. thousands of guys pouring across the border, completely unvaccinated. We every time it, it was either Knowles or AOC at that Met Gala the other night. One of us. It, 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 I couldn't. Us. I couldn't tell the difference. I mean, I, I think because her backside was kind of nice. I don't think it was you, but <laughs> I was staring at the back. I was staring at the back of her dress. And then somebody told me there's something written on it, and I, I didn't, I missed it. But, but, but here's, here's the thing: only the help, only the help is masked. Yeah. The rich people aren't, and we've seen Gavin Newsom do this at the French Laundry, go out to with his friends in this kind of small gathering. And the, and the the thing is is that when you come to Tennessee, when you go to Florida, you're in another world. I was, I had to go to California for two days. It was uh, like being in an alternate reality. The fact that people have bought into what is clearly, clearly a joke, is clearly well, well, this, no longer serious, is amazing to me. This is the, the next part of, of what Matt's talking about, which is if the vaccines really work and they're super duper effective, then you don't need to worry about the unvaccinated Correct. people. Correct. But furthermore, if the virus is really the deadliest plague we've ever dealt with, people would probably be all clamoring to get the vaccine, right? You wouldn't have such high rates of so people who are... So I actually see it a little bit different. I don't think that it's contradictory. I don't think that the that there's inherent contradiction in saying we have to, as the president said, we have to protect the vaccinated from the unvaccinated. You see that as contradictory because you're judging it on the merits of the actual words having actual meaning. <laughs> but they don't. Silly you. Yeah. He's speaking politics. And politics in the 21st century is only a game of turning out the base. Yeah. The president's... Poll numbers are collapsing because of the absolute travesty that is his withdrawal from Afghanistan. And his own base is starting to question whether or not he's a successful president. And what he's saying to them is, you, hardcore left, are very worried about COVID. Yeah. You're very concerned that COVID uh, is a threat. You mask your children outside in summer when they're alone. Uh, I want you to know that I am going to protect you from these Republicans who are literally disease-ridden, uh, walking 
pustules of death. And I will, you have to vote like your life depends on it. And those people who are all already vaccinated because they're, to Ben's point, very worried about the disease, they hear that message and go, yes, please, yep. please protect me from the unwashed Republicans. And this so, is the Pelosi strategy. Pelosi's strategy has been to win every other election, every other election cycle. What she does is she runs these blue dog Democrats. They go into fairly conservative areas and they win. Then she sacrifices them by yep. forcing them to vote for her left wing policies. Then they're gone. She loses the majority. She waits. Because she knows the ratchet only goes one way. Once a government acquires power, it never loses it. So she doesn't have to win every time. So two things. One, we definitely need to start a garage band called disease-ridden rotten pustules of death. (laughs) There's just no question. I thought that was a personal reference to me. Yeah, but but the the, the second thing is that the intent here, I think, uh, is, is not just to mobilize the base. It's to shift blame away from his own failures. Because he keeps saying that the economy is not recovering because of Delta. This is not true. The economy is not recovering in blue areas because blue area Democrats have decided to legislate that the economy not recover. The way that I know this is that the top 10 states in terms of the best unemployment rates in the nation are all red with the exception of Vermont, which has seven people and a cow. The the bottom 10 states in terms of unemployment rate, in terms of worst unemployment rate, are all blue. And the reason for that is not because of the vast death that is occurring in New York, right? New York is one of those states or, or New Jersey, right? Those are states that are not experiencing a current massive COVID wave. The reason that that's happening is because people in those states have decided that they want to lock down forever. There's a pagan worship of government that has now taken place. Mm-hmm. Joe Biden made a promise. The promise is that if you give up all of your liberty and if you give up all of your freedoms and if you give up all control to him, he will protect you literally from everything. He'll protect you from death. He'll protect you from impoverishment. And, and all you have to do is just climb in that bathtub. I mean, it's, I, I wrote a column this week called the Wally strategy because that's what this is. I mean, they're literally just going to push you into a lazy boy, and then they're going to put a screen in front of your face, and they're going to keep you there for the rest of your life. And this is the promise. That's not the threat. That's the promise. And for a lot of people, (laughs) that promise is actually good, right? You will protect me from death. He made that promise last year, by the way, right? He said, I won't shut down the economy. I won't shut down the the country. I will shut down the virus. How? How? You you won't. That is not a, no human being is capable of, quote unquote, shutting down the virus. That's not a thing that can happen. And so when he inevitably came up short, his next move was, it's not my fault that the virus wasn't shut down. It's all these guys. So you need to turn on your neighbor. And then that jackass has the capacity to go on national TV. He finished that speech with an appeal to unity after saying that everybody who is unvaccinated, including, by the way, everybody with natural immunity. I know that we're all supposed to pretend natural immunity doesn't exist, despite the fact that it is multiple times more durable than vaccine immunity. But- all those people, according to him, are bad and morally benighted. And the only thing that we have to do is target them and yell at them and yep. presumably and, and target their employment. And that will force them to get vaccinated, which totally is not going to happen. It's not about getting people vaccinated. It's not about making the world a better place. It is purely and simply about he does not want the blame for the promises he can never fulfill. And the only solution is give him more power. I don't want the blame when big tech uses your data to target you. <laughs> Whoa, against wow. Whoa, dude. Whoa. Whoa. See, I'm just getting better and better. <laughs> big tech is more powerful than most countries are at this point, and they profit by exploiting your personal data. It's time to put a layer of protection between your online activity and these tech conglomerates. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Think about how much of your life is on the internet. If you're like me, all of it. I have no actual friends. Uh, well, I mean, these guys, but I pay them, uh, basically, to like me. Sadly, every site you visit, every video you watch, every message you send gets tracked, gets data mined. But when you run ExpressVPN on your device, the software hides your IP address. That's so that big tech can't use the IP address to personally identify you. ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of your internet data to keep you safe from hackers and eavesdroppers on your network. And ExpressVPN does all of this without slowing your connection. That's why it's rated the number one VPN service in the world 
by CNET, and by TechRadar, and for what it's worth, by Daily Wire. What I like most about ExpressVPN is how easy it is to use. You download the app on your phone or on your computer, you tap one button, bam, you are protected. So please, stop handing your personal data over to big tech. Don't give that monopoly more and more opportunity to mine your activity and sell your information. Protect yourself with the VPN I trust to keep me safe online. Visit expressvpn.com backstage. That's how you know that they don't just love Ben. That's expressvpn.com backstage to get an extra three months free. They mostly love Ben. <laughs> Go to expressvpn.com right now, expressvpn.com slash backstage and learn more. Keep your data safe online. So it's not just that the president is seizing all of this power over workers, and we're going to talk a little bit more about our response here at The Daily Wire to that. But Matt, something you've been great on is the impact that this is having on school kids. Listen to a story today about schools in New York. They're open for the first time uh, after more than a year of being shut down. And not only do kids have to wear masks inside, kids who are at almost virtually, not no, but virtually no risk uh, of, of severe illness from COVID. Uh, but they have to eat lunch outside. They have to not face each other when they eat. They have to not talk they to one speak. another. Unless it's right. And if it's raining, then there's no lunch at all. You know, because you got to eat lunch outside. And yep. uh, during recess, they can have physical activity, but they can't come within six feet of each other. So no kinds of activity that involve, you know, participation with other Kids, they, they actually have outlawed any activity that would cause, I, I, there is exact phrasing in the, in the handbook or in the guidelines. I want to say it's excessive breathing. Yes, so they don't, want, breathing. Yeah, they don't want excessive breathing. Um, there, was, there was someone on <laughs> CNN that was referring to, uh, there was a doctor on CNN a couple days ago talking about uh, fans at a football game and he accused them of uh, breathing with gusto or something like that. <laughs> breathing with vigor was what he said. So yeah. we got to make sure that it may, maybe for kids in, in school we could have a, um, Does you know. Does vigor mean life? <laughs> Something like that. Uh, Breathing with life. Really. Maybe, maybe kids in school will will say, "Look, you you can take ten thousand breaths, and that's your limit. You go over that, and it's you're suspended." I don't know. <laughs> I, I think a lot of it, when we're talking about schools or what the government is doing, um, a lot of it is they want power and everything that we've talked about. But I also think there's something simpler, and it's it's a disease that we've seen in government for decades now, which is this mentality that someone just has to do something. Yep. Yeah. And uh, it's this someone do something mentality. It's kind of like anytime there's a tragedy or there's a, a you know a, a high profile murder, then we we have we pass a law with that person's name on it, and here's that that person's law, and it, it's always a law that was unnecessary because this stuff was already illegal. Wouldn't have but stopped the crime. Wouldn't have stopped the crime. But it's just let's do something. And so everywhere you go now, I mean, I've been traveling the last couple of weeks in a, in, a, in a few different cities. I was in New York most recently, which is just a, an absolute hellscape. But everywhere you go there in New York now, it's just they're, they're, every, every place you walk into, they're doing something in response to the virus. None of it makes any sense. There's no reason to be doing almost any correct. of it, but it's, at least it's something. It, and in, in one other thing I want to mention in the schools in New York, there's a video of uh, what they call the COVID buster team. And they're walking through the classrooms before kids show up, spraying some kind of chemical into the air, um, it, which, which what is that supposed to do? But nothing, but it's, some, it's something anyway. Right. And it makes us feel safer. No, you're exactly right. And, and when you talk to folks who are in favor of these sorts of measures and you say to them, there's no data to back this. Right? I mean, we actually cite data. They get angry at you for citing the data. Yeah. So if you point out that there is not a single study <laughs> that shows that masking school children is an effective tactic, like not one. And in fact, the single largest study was a study done in Georgia. It was a 90,000 student study. And it found that there were lower levels of transmission when teachers wore masks because adults are still transmitting it. But that when school children up to the age of 12 are in school, there was, they, they actually buried the result. They wouldn't, they wouldn't print the result. They, they file-drawered it is what it's called. Is what it's called. 
There is no difference between masking and unmasking for kids of that age group. And when you say this to people, you say, well, then you really shouldn't mask kids. They'll say, ah, yes, but what if one of the kids has, has, gets sick and they're not masked? And you say, well, then the same exact thing as if they were masked because I just gave you the data. And they'll say, yes, 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 but, but then they don't have masks on. And I'd be like, right, but the data says that that makes no difference for children because children don't know how to wear masks because cotton masks aren't doing damn bit of difference for little kids and, and all the rest of it. And they just, they can't let go of it because, again, the idea is that if something bad should happen, I think this is really what it comes down to for a lot of the decision makers. Yeah. And this has been the incentive structure all along. If something bad happens, you need to be able to say to somebody else that you did the thing. Yeah. Right? And it doesn't matter if the thing was useful. I sacrificed the chicken. Right? This morning, I sacrificed the chicken. And yeah, That's the right. COVID got the kid, but I sacrificed the chicken. And because I sacrificed the chicken, elite, you can't tell me I didn't try to propitiate the COVID gods. I did. I tried to do it. It, you're, you're really speaking to something important. It is a kind of paganism. 100%. We, oh, live, yeah. we live in a new paganistic age, and paganism is sort of like science but without controls, right? Which is exactly what we're seeing. They, they say trust the science, but of course science has controls. Increasingly, science is also science without the controls. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but what they mean when they say science is really mm -hmm. just uh, anecdotal data sets. Yeah, and we have, we have rituals that yes. we engage in in the pagan cult of science. We have the secular kefia that we put on our mouth now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, speaking of New York, this does remind me. I was just in New York about a week and a half ago. We can do something, too. You know, that we always have to do something. We've got to pass a law. We can do something, too. You, if you get on the subway now, it is so creepy. Signs everywhere. Wear the mask. Pull it up. Over your nose. Not quite. They come on the loudspeaker. Don't breathe. Don't do this. And so I decided, you know what I'm going to do? If I'm on a plane, they're going to make me wear the mask. I won't be able to fly. Okay, that's a prudential judgment. On the subway, they're not going to do anything. A lot of weird stuff happens on the subway, okay? I, I've spent a lot of years in New York. So I just wouldn't wear it. I wouldn't wear it on the, on the trains, and I wouldn't wear it on the subway. And you know what people said to me? Not so much me as too. boo. Me too. It I've just had does, the same experience. You just, you, if you just, in your own way, resist this stuff, it's important. Because to, to Ben's point earlier, we've got, we've got multiple liberty battles here. You've got the individual liberty battle. That's obviously being taken away. And you've got even the higher political liberty battle. We're not allowed to have a say over the future of our country because the administrative agencies and the public health priests are telling us what we have to do. And now this is all going to be enforced by OSHA. What's so crazy is even the priests of public health, even the administrative agents, just a year ago were saying, that would be overreach. That's right. Dr. You, Fauci, by the way, did you see that video of Fauci from 2019 talking yeah. about what you should do to prevent yourself from getting sick. Did you see this video? It's astonishing. It's a video from 2019, and he's Joe Rogan. He says, he, they, the guy literally asked him from Bloomberg, he says, so should we be wearing masks to prevent ourselves from getting sick? He says, no, you shouldn't do all that sort of paranoid stuff. Why would you do all that, that paranoid stuff? You need to eat healthy. You need to exercise regularly. <laughs> right? I mean, like, he sounds exactly, be, and, and by the way, if you want to know the, the reality about the public health establishment, yep. all you have to understand is that one of the major complications from the very start of this thing was obesity. Obesity was a major complicating factor when it came to COVID from the very beginning. And one of the things the public health establishment should have said when there was no vaccine available was not just put on a mask. It, it should have been get outside and exercise, right? Get healthier. Now, meanwhile, they were putting and out they wouldn't say a damn magazine, thing, you don't covers, fat and magazine covers of fat women saying this is healthy. Yeah. I mean, you also get cancer at an amazing uh, higher rate if you're, if you're obese. You know, the other thing about this is there's no way to talk to anybody, like a reasonable person. Uh, you know, you and I both were on the vaccine train. We both mm -hmm. like vaccines. And a reasonable person can say, well, vaccines are good, but mandates are bad. And you could have that debate and somebody might say, well, mandates might be necessary. But there's no debate. There's no debate. If you say that Dr. Fauci is suspect in terms of competence and honesty, which is just a fact, the yeah. guy is suspect, you want to prove that he's absolutely honest and absolutely competent, go ahead. 
But you can't do any of that. You can't discuss but, it. You're knocked off social media. Even in, this con- in the nuance and in the conversation, you could go even further. If you say, okay, I'm even willing to entertain some vaccine mandates. Washington mandated it for the tr- sort of inoculation for the troops. Right. You have mandates in schools. But what Fauci is doing that's so dishonest is he's comparing COVID to smallpox and polio. These are, these are different <laughs> diseases. And what, what I think is really important for conservatives to take away from all of this is... The government does not work the way we were told it does in Schoolhouse Rock. You know, I'm a bill up on Capitol Hill. That's not how it actually works. What happens is some bureaucrat whose name you've never heard of writes a bunch of jargon on a sheet of paper and you don't even know the law was passed. And they actually have power and they're actually forcing it on you now. And the left knows this. That's why the left is so good at mastering the administrative state. Conservatives just never have done it. It's like we bury our heads in that. I will say that this is a failure going all the way back to Reagan. Reagan came into office saying he was going to get rid of the DOE, yep. get rid of the Department of Education. He didn't do it. Bush came in saying he was going to rein in the administrative state. Instead, he added to it. Trump came in saying that he was going to rein in the administrative state. And they passed fewer regulations, but he certainly didn't dismantle it. Yeah. I'd, like and to pass they, a law, I'd like to pass a law that no law can be above 3,000 words and no contract can be above 3,000 yeah. words. I mean, when you sign <laughs> those that things... that law is 5,000 words, right? But here's the real problem is that the, the Congress, the, the one thing that the founders never foresaw... It was, it was a form of, of, I think, human shortcoming that they really didn't see because it was not them. And that was that human beings are not only ambitious, but sometimes they're ambitiously lazy. Hmm. Right? That, that's what they didn't see. They didn't see that yeah. they, they felt that, that what the competition over power would be was a bunch of people trying to grab power from one another. And so the way that you rein that in is that you have those powers check one another. What they didn't understand is that there might come a point where you would have a bunch of lazy ass hat yeah legislators who decided to delegate all of their power to executive branch agencies simply so that they weren't answerable and so they yeah. could continue to pick up their I will say, though, that in some, ways, in some ways we helped uh, create this situation on the right uh, because we came out against pork barrel spending. This and is a great point. Th- this was, you know, one of John McCain's big initiatives was to get rid of the earmarks because they're unseemly. And they are unseemly. They're disgusting. They are disgusting. Yeah. They're immoral. They're, they are immoral. This is where uh, congressmen will get together behind closed doors and they'll promise each other things. They'll be like, well, I'll support your crappy bill, but only if there's a bridge, bridge built. Bridge nowhere. Uh, yeah, a bridge built in my district. And you go, well, what do you want with that bridge in your district? It doesn't even go anywhere. And they're like, yeah, but my name will be on it. Mm. And so I'll have taken, you know, $64 million worth of taxpayer money, and you'll have the JW boring, uh, <laughs> uh, my middle name doesn't even start with a W, but you know, bridge, to, <laughs> bridge to nowhere. And you're like, well, I need your vote, so here's the money. And it's so ugly, right? They're they're taking the the fruit of your labor and just, spreading it around. And so we were we were against it because we didn't like it. But this is a version of conservatism that Michael talks about that I actually usually disagree with. But it's a very practical kind of conservatism that you shouldn't change anything that is, even if it's not great, until you've really thought through the ramifications <laughs> of it. Right. Right. That pork barrel spending goes all the way back to the founding era. And what pork barrel spending did is incented legislators to legislate. Because it turns out that doing something, voting affirmatively for something, is a risk when you're having to run for office every two or every six years. Every time you take an action, that action can be held against you. If you take no action, nothing can be held against you. And so the only reason these people voted for 250 years was to get bridges named after themselves. (laughs) And as soon as we took away their ability to get something personally out of the act of legislating, they went, oh, well, then if I want job security, I should never vote on it. Aren't they talking about bringing this back? Aren't they talking and they, about it? They, they've been talking about yeah. it a little bit. And of course, there's a lot of blowback, particularly yeah. from the talk radio right, which wants to be purist about this sort of stuff, which is why I always say, as part of that right, I always say, like, 
you should listen to us when it comes to principle, but when it comes to implementation, you listen to us so you know where where the marker is planted, not where the marker is going to end up, right? And, and don't like, forget- though, My job is very different from the job of the legislator who actually has to do the job. That's kind of a different thing. The reason this came up too was because we were defending John McCain, right? John McCain was the nominee and John McCain was a big spender. That guy didn't want to reform any entitlements or any aspect of the administrative state. He, frankly, he was probably trying to grow it. And so we said, okay, well, we can't make the argument there. Let's make it on pork barrel spending. And we all went along with it. But, but OSHA, was, but here's the truth. OSHA was passed all the way back in the 70s, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so the, the rise but of the, the administrative power, state. But the, the administrative state has been rising, of course, all throughout the 20th century. But the, the radical power rise was in the 60s. Wrapped. No, the, 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 the actual, if you look statistically, the radical rise of the administrative state didn't even happen during FDR as much as it did during the 60s. During uh, the 60s I, I blame John McCain. Listen, <laughs> <laughs> people count on you. And the people who count on you need you to be responsible. Being responsible means having life insurance. Policy Genius makes it easy for you to compare quotes and get life insurance from over a top, uh, a dozen top insurers all in one place. Why should you compare? It's easy, because you could save a lot of money. 50% or more on life insurance just by comparing quotes with Policy Genius. The licensed experts over at Policy Genius work for you, not the insurance companies. So you can trust them to help you navigate every step of the shopping and buying process. That kind of service has earned Policy Genius thousands of five-star reviews across Trustpilot and Google. Getting started couldn't be easier. First, you head to policygenius.com. In just minutes, you can work out how much life insurance coverage you need and compare personalized quotes to find your best price. When you're ready to apply, easy again. Policy Genius's team will handle all the paperwork and all the scheduling for free. Policy Genius doesn't add on any extra fees. I've told you before that I use Policy Genius. My own experience with them couldn't have been simpler. They went above and beyond. And I was actually skeptical. I tried out a different, see, I was going to tell you that I got it at Policy Genius, but I was actually going to go see if there was a better option by using another network. <laughs> it turns out Policy Genius actually uh, was the most competitive and won my business, and I couldn't be happier that I went with them. Head over to policygenius.com. You'll be happy too. You can get started right now. When it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. Policygenius.com. Who's going to explain to Jeremy that the accent in insurance does not go on the first syllable lines. <laughs> you know, you take Texas the boy out of Texas, but Texas, you can't yeah. take Texas out of the boy. It's a deeply disquieting fact <laughs> that we now live in, elect, in essentially an elected dictatorship. Yeah. Right? The, the, we have an elected monarch. We elect him every four years. And he comes in and he says some stuff. And maybe the deep state helps him. Maybe the deep state doesn't. And that's pretty much it. But do you think, do you think that he is really the, the ruler of the country, or is he just sort of this figurehead and it's the, the deep state or the agency? When the deep state agrees with him, he's the ruler of the country. When the deep state disagrees with him, no. <laughs> then they're the ruler, right. So I, this is the, this the, is the reason I say that is because very often you'd see Trump try to formulate a policy, and as you see General Mark Milley yeah. apparently calls him oh the Chinese. This is an unbelievable story, by the way. Like you had the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff calling our enemies the Chinese and being like, if we're going to strike you, I will call you first. Yeah. So I trust the Chinese military more than I trust, you know, the commander in chief. You may have that personal belief, yep. but let me just say, it's an act of treason, treason. to call up our enemies exactly. and say, right. yeah. I mean, aid and comfort to the enemy is literally you calling the enemy and being like, by the way, guys, if we decide that we're going to take you on, I'm, you, my first phone call is going to be to you. You know what you can do in the chain of command? You can refuse. Yeah. Right. You're allowed to say, no, I'm not going to carry out that order. You, know, you, can, the, you the, can do like Mattis and step down. Right. You can, the, you can do plenty problem, of stuff, right? The problem, we have, the problem we have is that our failed state and the, our failed elected officials and the bureaucratic state and our stateless uh, businesses, state, these you know, multi-country uh, businesses, all have the same agenda. And the Chinese have the same agenda, which is to control us and to spy on us. And that's, that's really, they're all doing yeah. the same thing. And they, you know, every single one of them. And, it, and there's nobody left in power 
to say, you know what? I mean, it's us. It's all yeah. us. This is it. This is like the bunker, you know, the, the hidden bunker. Well, I mean, you, saying, know, you know what? I think individuals should have their own l- choice. Literally, that is true in yeah. the sense that the federal government was very involved in the development and growth of Google. I mean, it basically bankrolled Google, Google Maps just for, for yes. one issue. And they obviously work with one another. Google has a relationship with China. All of these people are not only surveilling us and compromising, pre- predicting where we're going, they're actually impelling behavior. That's when, how sophisticated. When they took the don't out of their slogan, don't be evil, I think we all should have been, that should have been an alarm for all <laughs> so of us. I don't like that rebranding. <laughs> I, don't know I think that's another, that's another point about the, uh, about the vaccine mandate. We talk about the alliance of big business with the government and which and with this vaccine mandate i think probably big businesses uh have no problem with the mandate Correct. because they they can they can deal with it they can handle it. it actually takes the problem out of their hands right. this is exactly uh, this, right. this is something that small businesses will have to it's exactly have to carry have to carry the burden for and yeah. and that's something something else that you notice when you talk about going around the country and it's here in nashville it's everywhere uh, everywhere you go, it's uh, we've almost gotten used to it by now. But there are just small businesses shut down everywhere. Yes, that's right. And you talk to the talk to the to the locals in any town, whether it's a small town or a city, they'll tell you, "Oh, that place over there used to be a great place. Shut down d- during COVID. Never opened again. Never will open again." That's right. And meanwhile, Walmart, Amazon, you know, all Which Target. Is, they're, it's they're, fine because they can work with the right. They're doing now. they're doing great. That's so right. this this is a we have never seen. It's why big business has always been in favor of higher minimum wage. That's right. Yeah. Because yeah. they're we like, okay, we can pay yeah, we can, you know, we can can afford the mom and pop store. And, and regulations, too. They can afford it, the it's, regulations. It's a conspiracy by, really is a conspiracy by the most powerful forces in our country to destroy small business. And we've never seen anything like and it. Some, Ron DeSantis some, did something along these lines. I, uh, obviously a big fan of Governor DeSantis. But you remember when uh, the cruise line said, oh, we, we're thinking about having cruises again, but everyone will have to wear masks. And then Ron DeSantis said, no. If you're going to run a cruise out of the state of Florida, you you by law cannot require people to wear masks. And then the cruise lines for like exactly seven minutes were like, oh, no, that's awful. Please. <laughs> <laughs> the cruise lines were thrilled because they yes. know no one wants to go on a beautiful, sunny Caribbean yeah. uh, uh, vacation wearing a diaper on their face. Yeah. But they were afraid of the liability yeah. of saying we're going to pack a ship with thousands of of potential spreaders. Right. And what DeSantis did is he took he basically took the bullet. For the cruise industry, he said, well, the liability ultimately isn't on you because the state is actually forcing you to do what you want. And in a way, that's what's happening here with big business. A lot of these big companies, listen, at the Daily Wire, we we took a few weeks and let our people work from home when this was first starting and we didn't know what COVID was going to be. Sure. We very quickly came to realize uh, that if we didn't ask our people to come back, we would lose the opportunity to ever ask yeah. them to come back. And so even though it was in contravention of uh, the executive orders from the mayor of the city of Los Angeles, we invited our people back. And we didn't say you have to come back. We said, if you would like to come back, almost 90% of our workers were back in two days. But these big businesses, they kept waiting and they kept waiting. And, you know, 15 days to slow the spread turned into weeks, turned into 15 weeks, turned into 15 months. I mean, here we are more than a year and a half into this. People have moved, people have changed, totally reordered their lives. How do big businesses now get their employees to go back? What can they point to that has changed? How can they say, no, things are safer? That they, they missed every opportunity to say that you should incur some risk in life, to say that something has happened that made the circumstances different. And so now the only way that they can get people to come back to the office is to have the government say, you can enforce these mandates. And they can go, oh, these mandates are terrible. We expect you at work on Tuesday and be vaccinated. You know, it's really interesting that when, when I was in Hollywood, the age of the star ended. Mm. There's no Hollywood star who opens a movie anymore. No. It used to be the last one was probably Will Smith. But before that, there was Julia Roberts who could open a bad movie. Yeah. But people went to see it because it was a Julia Roberts movie. Yeah, that doesn't happen anymore. 
But still, the star system is in place in Hollywood. And the reason the star system is in place in Hollywood is if you're an executive and you hire George Clooney, none of whose movies make any money unless he's starring with Matt Damon and every other <laughs> movie star in Hollywood. But none of his movies make money. But if you hire him, you won't be fired if the picture dies. Yeah. Nobody's going to turn to you and say, you're the son of a gun who hired George Clooney, and that's why our, mo our movie died. It, you, an yeah. artist comes in and says, I'm going to do, I'm taking this risk. It's beautiful. I've got this beautiful idea. And, and the executives used to support this to some degree. Yeah. I've got this great idea. No one's ever done this before. You've never seen this before. And you go out and you think like, wow, you know, Jaws. I mean, that's, that's amazing. And then they just copy it all over again. We were living in this period of success. We're living in the the, the tail end of a period of the American century where people stopped wanting to envision things because they were playing with the house's money. They didn't want to lose the money they made. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to take the risk anymore. The risk is what it's all about. First of all, it's the only thing that makes life worth living. That's the yeah. first thing. And secondly, it's like how you make a great country. And instead, we've got all these people who do not want the blame. They don't want to be the guy. What DeSantis is doing, that they call him Death Santis and all this stuff. That takes guts, it, you know. I this mean, right. he, can be, he can be right or wrong, but at not, least he's governing. So the, the, the media, of course, set up the narrative that the act of bravery is to shut everything down. Right. When the real act of bravery is to say that human beings are allowed to be human beings. Yeah. That's a true act of bravery because you don't get blamed if you if you shut everything down and then a bunch of people die. Yeah. You don't get blamed for that. Then you did everything that you could. See, but if see you Andrew say, Cuomo. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But if you say, listen. People are going to have to make their own decisions. They're going to have to bear their own responsibility. And I will take responsibility for allowing people to take responsibility for their own lives. The media will kill you. The media will spend the next, you know, several years talking about how he's Ron Death Santis because not because you'll have Joy Reid on TV every night saying that DeSantis wants people to die. I mean, that, that's literally the language she uses when she's not being batted about by Nicki Minaj. Yeah. Right. That, 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 how, that, that, death, that Ron DeSantis wants COVID to win because he is allowing people to live their lives. And the inevitable result of this is a dependent people who are waiting for some yeah. sort of kingly figure to come and save them from all risk. And, and this, this is why it's so important to go to, to back to Michael's point. If our leaders aren't going to take risks and they're not going to take the lead, then it's important for us as individuals to decide, yeah. you know, where are we going to draw the line? And even with things like masking, you know, I, I decided early on in this that uh, I'm not going to wear the mask anywhere unless I'm asked by someone in the establishment, in a position of authority to put it on. And if they do, then I'll decide whether I want to put it on or just leave. Um, but the, the instinct for a lot of us is to just, is to, you know, well, just wear the mask because you don't want to, you know, you know, you don't want to cause any trouble. You don't want to be in an awkward social situation or whatever it is. Um, I, I think as individuals, we have to decide, well, I'm just, we're just not going to go along with this. We're and, not going to do it. We're not going to play the game. By the way, you will notice, you know, we're all in a lot of airports all around the country. There is a federal mask requirement in all the airports, and yet not everyone wears the masks in all the airports. It doesn't matter what, depending on what city you're in, you cannot wear it, you cannot comply, and, and there are enough people that no one is going to force you to do it. And you just think, well, what if all Americans did that? What if we all, if we all just stood up? I, I admit, this, you know, th this does go to, and th this, this is where we kind of veer into the AOC territory. I think so much of this is cosplaying virtue. Yeah, it's just cosplaying it. Like the, the the people who are who are wearing the mask at this point must know. Yeah, that everybody who they're around has had the ability to either get the vaccine or decided not to get the vaccine. Yeah, right. It, it, this was to me the masking issue was much more complex and nuanced when there was no vaccine. Now that there's a vaccine and every adult has had the ability to get it, the the issue all nuance is essentially removed because if you get COVID because I'm vaccinated and I breathe in your general area and then you get COVID, 
you did not have a right to never be sick again in your life. What you did have a right to do, at least to a certain extent, was to avoid deathly disease, right? At least the case can be made. You had, that, that, that's an externality. In the same way that I can't pollute a river, I can't sneeze my COVID on you when you're, you're 65 years old or 80 and living in a nursing home, right? Which is why even when, like, when it comes to vaccine mandates, I've said before that when it comes to, say, nursing homes, I don't see anything necessarily wrong with a vaccine mandate for employees of nursing homes because you're around vulnerable people literally all day long, right? Or mask mandates in hospitals where you're around people who are vulnerable all day long. However, once you're in just the general public and everybody's had the opportunity to get vaccinated, you don't have a right to require me to wear a mask on my face because you were too dumb or because <laughs> you decided not. And, and here's the thing that's most amazing. No one who is unvaccinated is asking anyone to mask. It is vaccinated people who are asking people to mask. Right. That's the part that's utterly insane about all of this. I've drawn this Venn diagram on my show at this point probably 10 times of the unworried and the worried. Right? In a normal logical world, what you would assume is the unworried are the vaccinated and the worried yeah. are the unvaccinated, right? <laughs> it is precisely the reverse. Right. All of the worried are the vaccinated and all of the unworried are the unvaccinated, yeah. which means that the pandemic is over for all public purposes. That's because right. once all of the unworried are unvaccinated, once the, then nothing you do is going to get, they're not worried. Yeah. They're not going to spend their days sitting up at night worrying about COVID. So how are you going to worry them into getting the vaccine? And everybody who was worried got vaccinated, and now they're still worried because you guys keep telling them to work. But you actually, you saw the, literally the AOC play acting of it all yeah. at, at the Met Gala, right? Because she- It is, cosplaying there. the revolution. She's, is, she, is, she is cosplaying the revolution. She is showing up there as the revolutionary. I'll show you at, at this $35,000 a, a seat <laughs> dinner. I'll show you people. And she's actually now got an ethics complaint because she may not have been able to accept the dress that she was given. But, <laughs> but when, she, when she shows up there, I don't know if she knows it or if she's, maybe she does know it and she's just playing along. But AOC is, is in not in any way challenging the establishment. She is the toast of high society. Oh, absolutely. It's why she was invited to the Met Gala. She is a tool of the plutocratic establishment. I mean, she, she is exactly the opposite of, yeah. w of what she's saying. The, we, 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 the, the plutocratic establishment and the left are the same people. At the yes, they are. They're yeah, identical. And, and it's a problem that the, the, the right hasn't caught on to yet. The right has not caught on to the fact. <laughs> I, I mean... To me, this this just proves the fact that the whole problem with Ayn Rand is that John Galt is just as big a son of a bitch as the as the <laughs> people in government. Anybody with power, anybody with too mm. much power, is a threat to liberty. I mean, and that doesn't mean you take their power away. It means you control the things that they can do. You yep. put it limits on it. You say you have certain rights. The individual has certain rights that no powerful person yeah. can take. Whether away, it's whether Google it's or whether right. it's government. Right. Can, yep. can we can we also just stipulate on the tax the rich thing? Uh, I, I don't personally care what tax rate Jeff Bezos pays. I, like, you can raise taxes on him. I, I don't really care that much, to be honest. But the idea that the rich are not taxed is yeah. so <laughs> absurd. I mean, they 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 are, they are pay the vast majority of taxes. All. And I, I was, I was, all. Uh, all. Yeah, taxes. Yeah. All. Right. When you remove the government benefits, they pay literally all and of I was, taxes in America. Just just today, I was I, I saw a report on CBS, which was like from a couple months old. Just because I'm you know, curious on, on how did this idea get out there that the rich don't pay taxes when they pay all the taxes. Um, there was just a good example. It's not like it's just from this report, but there was a report done by ProPublica, I think, a, a few months ago, claiming that the rich pay almost no taxes. And then you, you look at the report, and the way they come to that conclusion is they, they, they're using Jeff Bezos for an example. And they said, uh, Jeff Bezos, between 2008 and 2018, he paid like $1.4 in income taxes. It's like, how's that almost none? That's $1.4 well, they were saying, well, compared to the 200 billion that he's worth, 
it's only like, you know, it's, it's just a fraction of a percent. Because they well, don't understand how wealth works. Right. You don't, you, don't, you don't pay an income tax on your whole net worth. That would be a disaster for everyone. If you, if you imagine, you know, you April 15th. You have to liquidate your house every, every right, year. Right. Exactly. And that's, and that's, Times is complaining about this in the, in the paper today. Right. And, and they're not taxing the wealth they already have. What's wrong? And, I, and I think part of the problem is that, you know, you've got the elites, of course, who spread these ideas and they know better. A lot of people in the peanut gallery who go around yep. screaming that the t- rich aren't taxed. They have no assets, no net worth at all, and they don't even understand the difference between income and net worth. They That's don't understand so that easy. Jeff Bezos doesn't have $200 billion. He doesn't right. have like a Scrooge McDuck money vault out back <laughs> filled with $200 billion dollars worth of gold coins. Not much in it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he, he, has, he, has imag- he has ownership in something with an imaginary value of $200 billion. If he liquidates any of that, meaning if he converts any of that imaginary money, into real money. If he sells his stock. If he sells his stock, he now is taxed on it. Yeah. At the point that it becomes... And not only that, by the way... And it tanks, by the it, way, it, too. Well, I mean, that's the bigger yeah. point, right? I mean, there was one point where, where Zuckerberg, who's worth, yeah. you know, tri- a trillion dollars, where, where Zuckerberg... $75 billion. Yeah, he, where Zuckerberg tried to liquidate, I think it was $1 billion mm-hmm. of his stock. And... It, and the, the Facebook stock tanked by like ten percent mm-hmm. because if you are Why is the founder getting out right, correct. Huh. So, the, so this this idea that the wealth is worth what the wealth is worth is just absurd. First of all, there are a thousand different valuations on every single company. It's only worth what it's worth at the moment of liquidation. It changes based on the moment. This is why the, my favorite Warren Buffett take was in two thousand eight. They asked Buffett, you know, you, you just lost like a billion dollars in the market over the course of this crash. You know, if you look at your stock holdings, he said, what are you talking about? I didn't lose a dollar. They said, what do you mean you didn't lose it? I said, I didn't sell anything. Yeah. <laughs> Correct. If you don't realize the loss, the loss is not realized, right? If you own a house and the house loses value, you did not lose anything unless you sell the house after it has lost I, I the had, value. I had a driver, a chauffeur, explain this to me because he was day trading. <laughs> and he said, you know, I, I said, how are you doing this week? And he said, fine, I just haven't sold anything, so I haven't lost anything. Yeah. But he knows. <laughs> He's driving a but car. The, and but the knows. cosplaying of it is the entire point. Okay. I think our entire politics right now is not about doing virtue. It is about cosplaying the revolution. It's about, I am a revolutionary, not for, like, she wasn't standing outside the Met Gala holding a sign saying, screw these rich people and their giant bags of cash. Right. She was going in there <laughs> to hang out with them yeah. and take pictures with them with their arms draped about each other, all unmasked, except for the help, who are in the back, like the peons they are, wearing the mask. Keeping their right? filth away from right. all you the good Right, you saw Carolyn Maloney. Yeah, Carolyn yeah. Maloney is, is she, that, that was the best picture. There's a picture of Carolyn Maloney, the congresswoman from New York, and she's wearing an outfit that says, equal rights for women. Yes, that's right. And, and behind her, and she's unmasked, and behind her is a bunch of, it's like 10 women yeah. all wearing masks. Yeah. And she's not, right, because she's a special person. Yeah. Now, we know, according to the CDC, you're supposed to mask even if you're vaccinated. So clearly, they're violating the CDC's own standards because vaccinated people can pass the disease. It doesn't matter to her because she's one of the specials. It's all about the signal. The signal is the only thing that matters. It's not even that it is a thing that matters. It is the only thing that matters. You can do whatever the hell you want so long as you are signaling properly. And AOC thinks that she's signaling properly because all of the glitterati are cheering her. All the blue checks are cheering her. I mean, I tweeted out, Robespierre was not famous for going over Versailles and saying to Marie Antoinette and company, gang, Screw the monarchy, and then eating the cake with them. <laughs> if you're going to eat the rich, you actually have to eat the rich. You know what was so scary to me? I was on, on this subway in New York, not wearing my mask, and I looked over and I saw what looked like a political advertisement. It said, we're starting a revolution. This is about equality. This is about freeing people. And it's the, this, and I was looking, I was like, what is the revolution? I looked. 
It was an ad for Old Navy. Yeah. <laughs> it was an ad. The revolution is what sells products. And this is what yes. AOC either doesn't understand or she does understand, and she's pulling a but fast one on all her constituents. They called themselves the resistance all through the Trump administration. They agreed with the corporations. They agreed with Hollywood. They agreed with the Academy. They agreed with the media. They agreed with everybody in power. They're, they're, the, the, they're the tools they of capitalist hegemony. They were resisting the people. And there's, it's an interesting question, too, though, about why... AOC, she was around a bunch of rich people. And why are rich? Why would rich people embrace this message of, of tax the rich, tax me? Uh, because, you know, and, and that's the point people are making in AOC's defense is that, well, it's actually brave for her to go around rich people with that message. Uh, but it's not exactly the same thing. I mean, if I were to go to a Planned Parenthood fundraiser with a shirt that said, you know, imprison abortionists, I would probably get a very different reception. Uh, so, so, so why were they embracing her? And I think the reason is, uh, the reason, which, which actually sounds like a great idea to do that. But <laughs> I was thinking that. Yeah, the, the reason is, number one, they know it's not, it's not serious. It's virtue signaling. But also, for these rich people, this is the ruling class, they know that, okay, yeah, you raise the taxes on me a little bit. I can afford it. But also, I'm invet- you know, we're, all part, we're all comrades. We're part of the right. same crew here. So I'm investing in you, and you're going to advance my ideological agenda. So sure, take a little bit more well, of my money. It benefits me in the end, it, not so much the... Also, let's guy. be frank about this. Most of the people in that room have very good accountants, and those accountants are tasked with avoiding the taxes. <laughs> yep. right? Just like every other human being, That's which is why course. they're not giving charity, and it's also why they're not actually bothering to sign checks that are above and beyond what they're supposed to pay to the federal government to the federal government. Every single person in that room, there is a provision on your tax forms that allows you to send extra money to the federal government. Now, one person in that room has ever signed a dollar to that provision because no human being has ever signed that provision of the IRS tax form unless they are completely and utterly delusional. It is insane to me that we are supposed to pretend that this was some sort of act of, of true bravery when she's walking into a place where they are cheering. They are cheering for her. Now, There's any, a quote by Th- Thomas Chatterton Wilson, uh, Williams put out a, um, a, a fantastic quote from Stefan Zweig where he says anybody who is, is saying something supposedly revolutionary who is risking nothing is, of course, not saying anything revolutionary. Right. She's, she's not only risking nothing, she's benefiting from all of the look slay queen kind of nonsense. The reason these people do this is because it gets them off the hook for the same reason the corporations do it. Now the left is fine with all of them being wealthy. It's the reason why the left doesn't care whether athletes are wealthy. They only care whether business people are wealthy because business people might actually live their principles, but athletes signal their principles and then live like the business did, people. Did anybody the, 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 go the, with AOC though in this? Did anybody... Did anybody like this AOC? Stuff? Yeah, the left did. Rolling really? Stone called it iconic. Really? iconic. Did they really? Yeah, they did. Absolutely. Because well, it is it, iconic. It, it's, <laughs> honestly, this goes all the way back to you, I'm sure that that you know some of us have read uh, Tom Wolfe's Radical Chic. Yeah. This is all just Radical Chic. Yes. The the, the single greatest political essay ever written. Yeah. If you haven't read it, you should go read it. It's a, it's a an essay about Leonard Bernstein holding a dinner party. That whole, that whole book is great. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. And uh, and the the whole this chapter of the book, which was originally a cover piece in, in New York Magazine before New York Magazine was complete trash. And, uh, and the entire article is about Leonard Bernstein, the famous conductor, hosting the Black Panthers in his, in his penthouse apartment with all of these white <laughs> celebrities. And all these white celebrities are fawning over these exotic revolutionaries. And the exotic revolutionaries are saying directly to them, yeah, you know, when the time comes, we're going to kill you. Yeah. Or we're, we're actually, and, and all of these people are clapping for them yeah. and cheering for them. And the thing is that in this particular analogy... AOC is not the Black Panthers. She's Leonard Bernstein putting on the cap. Right, right. right. She's not even Black Panther. <laughs> right, that's a great point. in Joseph Conrad's The Secret Agent, this exact scene where she hosts, there's a woman, a rich woman who hosts all the radicals in town who are actually blowing people up and killing children and all this stuff, but she's hosting them and they keep saying to her, you know, you're next. And she goes, yes, I know, it's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> so this week, uh, I'm a young man, yeah. 42, <laughs> And yet I had to subject myself to the humiliations of an older man of 45 
and get a colonoscopy. Oh, my God. It was... Uh, <laughs> Welcome to the club, pal. It was not great. <laughs> yeah. It was not great would be the official... Uh, <laughs> The official way to report. <laughs> oh, you don't know what fun is. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> literally the only time in Jeremy's life he has not been full of shit. <laughs> <laughs> You're not. They clean you up. Yeah. Uh, but all I did yesterday was sleep. Hmm. And Good. as you spend an entire day sleeping, you think, "Man, I love my mattress." I hate that. <laughs> that was the worst. I love my that mattress. Was, that was really bad. Yeah. And that's because of our friends over at Helix. <laughs> Helix Sleep has a quiz that takes just two minutes to complete, and it matches your body type and sleep preferences to find the perfect mattress for you. <laughs> oh, man, they're so going to ask for their money back. Why would you buy a mattress that's made for someone else? With Helix, you're getting a mattress that you know will be perfect for just the way that you sleep. That's because they have soft, medium, and firm mattresses. Mattresses great for cooling you down if you sleep hot. Mattresses great for spinal alignment to prevent morning aches and pains. And even a Helix Plus mattress for people who are a little bit plus size, uh, a little bit plus size, the mattress comes right to your door. Uh, it's shipped to you for free. You don't ever need to go to a mattress store again. They even have a special financing offer, uh, which is in effect right now, where you can get your own Helix mattress, the number one rated mattress in America, for less than one dollar a day. Just go over to HelixSleep.com/backstage. Take that two-minute sleep quiz. They'll match you to a perfect customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. Uh, listen, sleep is one of the most important things we do. Most of us don't do enough of it, especially if you've got kids. Every moment that you can be sleeping, you should be sleeping. It's actually, it's good for your health. It's good for your mind. Uh, it makes you more productive. To get a good night's sleep, go to helixsleep.com. Helix is offering up to $200 off of all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners over at helixsleep.com slash backstage. Again, head over to helixsleep.com slash backstage. You know what they teach you in podcaster school? They always say, there is nothing advertisers like to be associated right, with more, more than uh, colonoscopies. colonoscopies. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, they always say, like, at the top so of the ad. So which advertiser gets the prostate exam? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I always say at the top of the ad, like, riff on your personal sleep experience. <laughs> I did sleep all day yesterday. You know what? One of the things that was so amazing with Matt Gallo is to see all of these people who truly are both brave and stunning. <laughs> and also victims, yeah. right? They're all victims. Like every single one of them is wearing, like AOC is a victim, right? She said this in her own statement. She said, people are constantly policing intersectional bodies and like, oh yeah, oh yeah, so, so much. I mean, it was <laughs> Jonathan Swift. Oh yeah, Jonathan Swift couldn't write this stuff. It's, it's, it's incredible parody. And, and then you have- goes, By the way, not a week goes by that she doesn't come up with some victim group to, super, to, to superimpose herself. My favorite is when they come up with victim groups that make no sense. My favorite recent one was when Cori Bush recently tweeted out that the Texas abortion law had a disproportionate effect on black women, brown women, and queer women. And I thought to myself, well, I hadn't heard that one before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're going to have to explain the, the biology of how queer women are particularly affected by <laughs> abortion law. Uh, that, that doesn't make so much sense to me. But, the, but beyond that, the, the, the victim complex was with all, right, you have Megan Rapino. Yes. was celebrated for playing a sport that people watch once every four years because it is mandatory under the Constitution of the United States for us to care about women's soccer once every four years. And, I, I and then, that, I guess. Well, that's because you're a traitor. Yeah. And yeah. Well, your execution order will come through tomorrow. And, and then complain about a contract that she herself signed to be paid inordinate amounts of money to play a sport that no one cares about. Yeah. And she goes to this thing with a little clutch that says, in gay we trust. Because that she's... A victim, right? Because she's a lesbian, she is a oh, victim, I, I, but also a hero. But also, but also a hero, <laughs> and a hero, and so and victimized, victim. but heroic. Yeah. It's like Normandy, and, but if the heroes were also victims, who were heroes? And That's also, what it's mostly like. Uh, uh, let's not forget 
Speaking of uh, sports heroes, Naomi Osaka. Wow. Who, yes. Who, yes. <laughs> Stunning bravery. Who, who, yeah, who's, who's, who's too much anxiety to answer questions from the media showed up with a, you know, with a very outlandish outfit drawing attention to herself as well. And I, my, my favorite thing, though, that AOC said was um, she was talking about her fashion designer and trying to put the fashion designer yeah. in a victim group. And she said uh, something like, this is a black immigrant fashion designer. It's like, yeah, but she's from Ontario, so, you know, it's, it's technically an immigrant, but... So, like, that lady is in charge of a massive fashion line that sells... I, I read the prices on her website today. She sells shoes that are, like, $1,000 shoes. She, she, she ain't selling, like, Payless for the people. <laughs> At okay, like, every turn, you must be a victim. You can't... Right. If it, she couldn't say, my fashion designer, truly one of the greatest fashion designers in the world today, because... That compliment bestows no virtue. Correct. Instead, you have to say, my fashion designer, an immigrant, my fashion designer, a person of color, my fashion desi- designer, a, a survivor of childhood abuse, whatever it is, you th- that's your way of saying a good person. Right, exactly. And, and it's every single person who is there. So it's Cara Delevingne wearing a bib that also looked like a straitjacket that said, peg the patriarchy. Yeah. And you're like, you seem to have benefited pretty wildly from the patriarchy. <laughs> and by the way, if you believe that America is a patriarchy, let me just say that if we airdropped you into a true patriarchy right yeah, now, really. let's say Afghanistan should, wearing that should, outfit, where one is around, yeah. then um, you would last approximately 0.2 seconds. And if America were a patriarchy, you wouldn't get away with that slogan. And, and if the rich weren't being taxed, you wouldn't get away with that slogan. It, it, I mean, this is exactly right. Yeah. It's everything. I mean, it's, it's Lil Nas X showing up wearing variously ball gowns that he stole from Billy Porter or a gold suit of armor that, I mean, but honestly, like, still still less gay than C-3PO. But it's but <laughs> inarguable. inarguable. I want to stand up for Lil Nas X, though. He admits it. He admits it. He comes out and he says, I'm doing this just to make the right angry because I love it when they yell at me and it makes me... You know, I thought, like, okay. okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Speaking, it's a living, you know? Speaking of him, we, we, I mean, we've already forgotten, because th- this, this was a big week for... Hollywood degenerates, because just the, just the day before that was the VMAs. Yeah. yeah. And there was something, and like nobody cares that the VMAs, nobody even knows the VMAs happened. Yeah. I don't even um, know what the V stands for. In VMAs. It's, uh, yeah, I, I don't either. But it's, it's, it's uh, you know, one of the saddest things I think I've ever seen, which I just saw on, on Twitter, because of course, I, like everyone else, I didn't watch it. But Madonna uh, <laughs> comes out yeah. in like a in, a, in a, you know, in an age appropriate coat at first, and then. Grand she, Madonna. Right, she's years old. She's sixty-three. She's sixty-three, and then she she strips it off, and she has this this. Um, Ilsa, this it was Ilsa Shewolf of the SS. Right. Yeah. Like this, yeah. This weird <laughs> dominatrix outfit. And it's the kind of thing that when you when you see that, you know that it's like time to put Nana in a home. But it, it really was. It's just sad. It's in a, in a way, it's just sad to see, and and you see how kind of. Uh, By the way, this, yeah. we're being told that is the height of liberty. That if a sixty-three-year-old woman can dress up like a prostitute and sort of jiggle around. That is the height of liberty. Like a Nazi prostitute. Like a Nazi <laughs> prostitute. That that's, and you just think, maybe there were some other life choices that may have involved a little more patriarchy or may have involved a little more, uh, you know, reining things in where you would be happier. I'll never forget, Lucille Ball did an interview in the 1970s or something, and they said, oh, Lucille, you're a prominent woman, a powerful woman. Are you in favor of women's liberation? She said, you know... I think I'm liberated enough already. I think I've got a lot of money. I'm very powerful. I kind of, I want a more stable life. I think. She had a cigar in her hand at the time. She, she certainly did, yeah. Daily Wire members, the chat box is open, and we're about to start taking questions 
from you. If you're not a member, please head on over. We need your help now more than ever. You can help us fight this tyrannical vaccine mandate and get great content. Go to dailywire.com slash subscribe. Use promo code don't com- do not comply at checkout for an additional 25% off. And here is our first question from one of our Daily Wire subscribers. How dirty is the right allowed to play before we lose the morality stance? How what? How, how dirty, dirty can we play? Oh, dirty. I think what they're saying is before we lose... Uh, our moral position. Look, right? I'm a big I'm a big advocate of wielding government power in a just and moral way. So I think probably more so than a lot of people on the right, I think one of the big mistakes we've made is that we have not wielded the power, even the power that the people have given us on the happy occasions that we win elections. I don't think there's anything wrong with wielding government power. I don't think you need to be immoral to do that. I don't think we need to do the stuff that the left does. But I think if the, if the people vote for us, if we have the ability, if we control the Congress or the Senate, or the presidency, if we have people on the court, we ought to use that in a way that is right and just and oriented toward virtue and also in keeping with the American political tradition. And I just think we've, I think a lot of the reason Republican politicians have not done that, they've talked a good game about how it's immoral to use government power. I think largely it's because they're cowards and to the points we've all been making tonight, they don't want the accountability of actually making decisions. So I will say, I think there's a pretty major distinction to be made here in terms of wielding power and using tactics between defensive tactics and offensive tactics. What I mean is that when you're talking about, for example, this is true in in pretty much every area of law. So, for example, if I were to walk up to somebody and just kill them, I'm now a murderer. If that person is trying to kill me and I kill them, that's now self-defense and nothing happens to me. Right. I I may be performing the exact same act, namely taking the life of another person, but the circumstance determines the morality of the actual activity. The same thing is true with regard to the use of government power from time to time. If you're using government power, for example, to get rid of government power, right, there's an edifice that's been built up and now you need to tear down the edifice. That is a different thing than using the same level of government power in order to impose. The, the same thing might be true with regard to, for example, boycotts, right? We've had this discussion before. On a pure, nobody's boycotting anybody level, I think it's probably immoral to boycott people based on the political views of the people who own the company alone, right? Not how the company acts, just based on the political views of the people who own the company. I think it's bad, okay? However, if we now live in a world in which the left is doing this to all companies and therefore forcing all companies to the left, you have a moral obligation to defend yourself by using a similar tactic and, inc- and, and creating mutually assured destruction. Well, but What's I wrong be, with imposing? I, mean, I why, would go why, further, yeah. I would impose. Know, I mean, I, I just think... Is, is I, the assumption that it's, it's wrong for the government to impose? Because I'm not sure I would agree with the... Well, it, it, depends on, it depends on the level of imposition that we're talking about specifically. Here's an example. So, Isn't every law an imposition? I mean, even, even every prohibition is also a mandate, right? I mean, if you're prohibited from driving over 65, you're mandated to drive 65 or under. So... Let me give an example. Let me give an example to maybe clarify it, which is this. Uh, I don't think the Founding Fathers would have considered a drag queen story hour to be a constitutional right for anybody. I think it's perfectly right and just and preferable to ban a drag queen story hour. Maybe you do it at the local level. Maybe you enforce obscenity laws. To ban drag queen story hour from what? From from the libraries, from the schools, from yep. these sorts of places from where, pu- they, where from, it exists. From places paid for with public dollars? Or private dollars, for that matter. I think we can would have Would you ban Drag Queen Story Hour in my private home? Yes. <laughs> yes, probably I would, yeah. Yeah, I, I, would, think that's I would not. But, but I... But I I do believe believe that that is an... uh, Yes, the the school... Well, schools are different for two reasons. One, because uh, to the extent that you're targeting children at all, children don't have the same rights as adults, and we have have a responsibility uh, as adults to... But Drag Queen Story Hour always targets children. To the extent that Drag Queen Story Hour is specifically referring to something involving children, then yes, I agree that it could be 
that it could be but, prohibited. But take, in, but take, an, even take in one that doesn't involve kids, yep. because yeah. kids you're now talking about a subgroup of people who literally, you know, have could to you, have other could you, Would you outlaw a, a drag show at my private home? For adults. Well, I, I attend your drag show, so I obviously... You drag show. But let's take it even... I mean, I, the debate that this usually hinges on, and I think it does clarify the point, mm -hmm. is pornography. Do, you, do we say that it, we can never impose our views of pornography on anybody, or do we, what, in what I think is the American political tradition, say, you know, there's no right to obscene material, and we should really rein this But, I, but I, I think... I, 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 we're on the same page. Of, I, I believe outlaw all pornography... Um, but even but with that, you can also hinge that argument. You don't have to do this, but I think maybe the most effective argument is that could be entirely hinged on children. Also, I mean, you you can make the argument for banning all pornography, all internet pornography, which is the only kind of pornography we're talking about, um, because children exist and because and because they have access to the internet. And so by putting it on the internet, you are putting it yeah. potentially. I don't agree. I don't agree with the two of you about pornography. Yeah. Uh, I don't agree that you can say. The fact that kids exist means that a thing that isn't right for kids shouldn't exist. An example would be cigars. You could say the existence of cigars in the world does it does necessarily well, it does necessarily uh, follow that some kids will have access to tobacco. That's why I say internet. Are you just talking about because I started smoking cigars as a kid? Is yeah. that what you? It's, it's it's because of the internet. Like the cigars can't exist on the internet. I mean, you could buy them on the internet, but you can't you can't smoke them on the internet. So because of because of the unique uh, medium which which the internet is. Um, there's just no way, as long as you put that stuff out there on the internet, any child can access it just by hitting a button on a computer. Yeah, I, and, uh, I think we would all agree that something should be done to make porn far less accessible to, so then to, to children. But that is different than saying I would outlaw all But then to broaden it out, though, to, to the point, we are suggesting using the government to impose but our But again, we're still, using, we're still using examples that are, uh, b that are centered around children, and children aren't in, imbued with the exact same rights that adults uh, possess. What about banning pot? Banning marijuana? I would ban. I, I, or, I mean, it still is technically I mean, illegal. Marijuana has been illegal my entire life for yeah. all the good it's done. I think that that's a pretty. Uh, no, I don't know. I think ineffective law. I think more people use it when it's legal. I don't. I don't think that uh, the same number of people use it when it's illegal as use it. When so it's I, I think that there's also questions of prudence that then arise in terms of mm -hmm. at what level you are going to do these quote unquote moral things. Yeah. Right. So I think that one of the big problems here is that we fail to get specific enough when we talk about which body ought to do this. So I have far less problem with, quote unquote, legislating morality when you're talking about a local level with a much more homogenous population than I do when you're talking about nationally, for the specific reason that if you want to share a polity with people with whom you're a heterogeneous, yeah, then yeah. you're going to have to acknowledge that there are differences in perception on issues like, for example, marijuana or even pornography, which is consensual activity between adults. Most of the ones where I think that the federal government ought to get involved in general bans do involve children, which is why I think abortion is a federal issue, right? You're talking about literally the removal of life from yeah, other human beings, which is why it's not a state issue. But when you're talking about, do you, do you want to, this is, this I think, it isn't a, a, a question as to whether, and it may be that we don't, whether we want to share a country with New York. Yeah. Really, I mean, this is, a, this is a serious question because New York obviously doesn't want to share a country with us. So if you have a, a federal government that, for example, is saying that there's now a federal standard, this is what Joe Biden has now said, right? There's a federal standard that you must allow abortion in your states. Yeah. What he's effectively saying is that New York should govern Texas. But don't you? But and if Texas says, okay, well, you know what? The same way you feel about abortion, that is the way that we feel about pornography. And so we're going to do this. Eventually, what you're going to get is just the country splitting. What you're not going to get is everybody living by your standard because in the end, this is this is the right, I, I think this is the right answer. The fact is that local government 
It has, has, a, this way. has, yeah. has a lot of power of states. It has a lot of power that the federal we, government should, should not have. And there is no reason, there really is no reason why New York can't govern itself as it wishes to govern itself. The problem is continually, and this is true continually, is that California wants Texas to be California. Right. Yeah. But Texas doesn't want California to be Texas. Correct. Right. And, and I've, I think this is where we have to make our stand. I mean, we have to make the stand that Texas has the right to be Texas. Because, uh, you know, I think on abortion, this is a different issue because, as you right. say, it's, it's a question but, of but killing people. But states make their but, own murder but, laws. But, I mean, what's that? No, murder laws are statewide. Yeah, so then wouldn't it... Well, but, but there is no... Uh, no state would have the right to decriminalize murder. Well, yeah, we haven't tried it, I guess. No one's... murder is also... You'd be violating your federal civil rights. You'd have, a, you'd have a federal case against the state government if they decriminalized right. murder. You have a right I, I, I think por- pornography is just... We really have to grapple with what, with what pornography is. I mean, first of all, when it comes to splitting the country apart, I actually think that, that ultimately that, that is what's going to happen. Maybe, maybe there's something... That may very well be. But yeah, the question but, is, do we want to have a... Yeah, I don't, but, no, maybe but, I don't but, favor But pornography is such a, an insidious and, and, and damaging thing, which is, which is helping to destroy our country and the next generation of children in such a particular and, uh, and devastating way that I, I think it does call... Not, it, it will never happen. There's never going to be a federal ban on pornography, but I think it could be justified. They tried it. Also twice. because, because you, you, the idea that anybody has a, a right to have, to have sex, record it, and then upload it to the internet for everyone to see... Um, I just don't, but why I don't. I don't believe that that right exists. Why are, so, we, why are we afraid to give states different cultures? I mean, uh, you know, Arkansas is not the same place as California. Why can't they be different? I don't understand this. I do not understand the compulsion. And it, it does exist on the right, but it really is prevalent on the left. I don't understand the compulsion to make other... You know, this country is so huge. I lived in Europe for seven years. I lived in England for seven years. I couldn't explain to people that England is the size of Oregon. Yeah. You know, and you can do different things in, or, in a country the size of Oregon than you can in a country that includes both Oregon and Florida. So I, I agree with your point, and I do think that states have different cultures, and they ought to have different cultures. But one of the reasons here why why California wants Texas to be like California, and why I understand that, is in order for there to be a nation, we need to have something that kind of links us together. We don't come from the same stock. We don't have the same religion. Which and both those things were not true at the founding no, era, or they, right. or they were much. You know, no, it's they were true, truer at the founding yeah. era, I suppose. Uh, we, we increasingly don't speak the same language even. I'm not talking about Spanish. I'm talking about English. We can't even yeah. speak the same <laughs> English language. And so in order to have, it, we don't even have borders. So if you, if you don't have anything in common, then you can't have a republic, right? A republic refers to the things we hold in common. I agree with that. But one of the principles that we used to have in common was a sort that's, of that's leave right. each other that's, alone. That's, yeah, that's yeah, all right. Yeah, yeah, As that principle, so that's, that's why I think that you know, I go back to the defensive point, which is that if California wishes to legislate California and everybody else, I can see where the drive comes from to say, okay, well, let's legislate Texas. And this on is why else. it's a little but, bit, a little bit of sophistry, I think, to say all laws regulate morality. Sure, that's a that's true by definition, as, it's true. That's yeah. true as far as it goes. But there is a fund, but but it's obscuring another truth, which is there is a fundamental difference between laws that preserve liberty. And laws that encroach on liberty. But is that not a moral? Those are those. those that itself is making a moral claim, that it is that's good the, to right. I mean, that's the sophistry, though. No, I think it's, it's just. A it's true not statement. that you're. It's not that you're wrong, but you're still obscuring the fact. It's like saying, well, if we have power, we should use the power to make whatever we want happen. And if they have power, they should use power to make no, no, whatever no. they want. But that's happen. what I'm saying. And I'm, saying what I'm saying we should use power but, to constrain the power. But I am not saying that. I am saying. When we have power, we should use that power to pursue good and avoid evil. And what you're saying is when we have power, we should use that power to pursue good and avoid evil, which you're defining as maintaining individual no, but, liberty. But we never make this argument. This was one of my big problems with Trump. It's essentially the way he behaved during uh, the COVID thing. Forget about the stuff that, that 
garbage that came out of his mouth. But one of the things that he did was he let each state basically make their own rules. Now, how can that not be right in a state with the population density of South Dakota versus a state with a population density in Manhattan of, of, of New York City? You know, of course they should make different rules. Of course they yeah. should make different isn't rules. Part of the, isn't part of the problem... But he never said it. He never, yeah, yeah. He didn't make that fight. It, right. part, part of the problem... I mean, I don't mean to make this even more obscure and, and broad, but, uh, but one of the reasons why these conversations never go anywhere, we talk about, well, the government is supposed to preserve liberty or preserve right. rights. We don't define our terms. Yeah, yeah. No one even... Know, what, what the hell is a right in the first place? And what is liberty? Yeah. And how do you distinguish it? Like, what liberty really, should you have? And what really should you have? Yeah. Where does any of this stuff come from? How do we know that we have any of it? Who decided any of this? I'm not saying that, you know, that, that they don't exist or that rights are purely a, a, you know, a human fabric, fabrication or construct. I think you actually you can kind of make that argument, and it's, it's not a totally crazy argument, but that's part of the problem. We talk about what we don't have in common. Uh, we, we might have once said that we, ha we all had in common this belief in human rights. Well, now you get 100 people in a room and you ask them, well, define a human right, you're going to get 99 different answers. Right, but I, I think, so, the, the, so I think the, the discussion can be made a lot more specific by asking, do you ever have a right to be sinful? Right? Is there ever a right to be sinful? No. Okay, so I think that the answer is that the answer is yes, actually. Yeah, yeah, I think the answer, the, I think yeah, the answer so, is So yes. how would you define well, Lord Act? What, what the reason, the, the reason, no, the reason, yeah. I, the yeah. reason that I say, and the reason that I say that is because yeah. the minute you say you do he, not have the right to be sinful. I know, but the, the reason that I say that you do have the right to be sinful is specifically because of the definitional problem that you now have with regard to sin. Mm. What I mean by this is this was the Treaty of Westphalia, essentially. Right, because if, if you, I mean, not to, not to yeah, steal yeah. Clavin's thunder by citing the Treaty yeah. of Westphalia, eventually we always end up, it's, it's yeah. like, it's like uh, it yeah, the internet point argument, point. whoever invokes Hitler hey. first in the, on this show, yeah. whoever invokes the Treaty of Westphalia first. Hey, I was there. But I, I think there is a reason why this conversation is breaking down on, on yeah. along Catholic versus non-Catholic lines, really, because yeah. the, the basic idea that human reason allows for the possibility of, you have to be able to find virtue, but that does require you to have to explore in order to get to virtue. And not only that, but you have to also accept the possibility that your definition of virtue may differ pretty significantly from that of, say, the Protestants or the Jews who are living under the auspices of a Catholic country. The, and, the basic and, agreement and of Westphalia was at a certain point you have to leave each other alone. And, and so the question is, virtue has to be chosen. But the other problem with virtue is that virtue is a habit. And so while the cult, you know, we say culture influences politics, but politics influences culture. Statecraft is soulcraft, you might say. So it, it is certainly the. I mean, this is like Plato would say this, the very same thing. And it's, <laughs> Plato was a fascist. You might take it a little <laughs> far. Right? But, but I, th I think. I think statesmen thread all of history, including the Founding Fathers, when they say that, for instance, liberty is not the same thing as licentiousness. What they are saying is a, a different version no, of it. But that's why but, the system but, they but created the, founders, the, reason the founders. The reason the founders demanded that the people have religion is because they understood that without religion, the government will be would have But they also had established right. churches right. in so, the so states. So can I ask, they also I, had laws I, just, I actually want to, I'm interested in what your answer is. What, what yeah. is a right, would you say? How would you define it? So what I would say is that a, a right, I mean, going, going all the way back to, you know, the, the, Aristotelian sort of definition of natural law. It derives historically from natural law. So the idea being that you can derive from the universe that there are certain laws that apply to humanity and there is a set and fundamental human nature and interaction with the world generates laws that you are best off living by. Okay, the, the converse of that is that you have to have the right to use your mind to investigate the natural law because nobody has yet been able to peg down exactly every specific of what natural law constitutes, right? This is a point made by Grotius, who's really the first person who starts talking about natural right. Uh, so the fundamental right to use your mind to investigate the world requires things like freedom of speech. The fundamental right that you have to property is predicated upon a natural law notion that human nature is acquisitive. 
And therefore, once I acquire something, you do not have the ability to, to encroach upon me and steal it. Right. So life, liberty and property are to me the, the basic natural rights. Now, that does include the possibility that as we create polity, we now have to use pragmatic means to determine what the polity is going to look like, which is why I think that you can encroach more on, you know, on trying to restrict law to virtue on the local level than you can on a broad level. Right. At a certain point, morality and ideal morality are going to have to conflict with with how you actually govern. And so this is actually almost two separate conversations. In the ideal state, should we have a monarch who is perfect and also instills virtue? Or how do we actually set up a system of governance? What the founders came up with, and I still think it's the best system, is a system whereby these rights, life, liberty, and property, are left to two dual things. We only think about government whenever we have these conversations. But they are really left to two dual and, and necessary means. One is a government that is large enough to stop the negative violation of your rights, but not large enough in many of its essences, in order to promote virtue, and a social strata, a social mm. body that promotes virtue. But this is what Tocqueville talks but, but, about. But, but, can can the, I add one thing to this, yeah. though? It, it, it's the right, rights involve doing what you want with what is yours. And this is to Jeremy's point, that if he wants to have drag queen story hour, leaving children out of it, in his home, that's his right, because but, it's his home. But the statesman but in America are, of the town... The, the, the kids going to the... No, no, he, no, 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 we, we're leaving the, the kids out. This is for the... This is just for us. Drag hour, not drag stories. Guys dress up as women. They're telling the stories just to him, okay. But the statesman of the founding era, it seems to me... I think we are misrepresenting here. I don't think that they believed that you had a natural right to sin given to us by the Treaty of Westphalia. I, I, it seems to me they had if laws. I sin, but, but I no, I don't agree with this. They, they, but I, oh, I, hold on. They were Protestant. They were Protestant. They were. And, a, and a core component of Protestantism is a belief that Christ set us free from the law. Then why that, did that, then freedom, why, that freedom particularly means? Sure. Freedom to fail. But what, then why did they outlaw obscenity? Why did they outlaw adultery? Because why they lived, they because they lived in a different time. But they, they outlawed all these things that were saying we all have a natural right. But Michael, Michael, hold on. They, they, didn't, but they didn't at the federal level. Not at the federal level, but they did but this, everywhere else. But this goes to my point. Which is oh, the way sure. if you're talking about homogenous communities where people generally agree, then right. you have the right to make That's your right. own community. But one, then they one, don't one, one of the rights is to have, like, what, this, this goes to your point more. Yes. One of the rights of a community is to form a polity. Yes. Right? You do have a right to form an HOA, for example. Yes. And essentially, a local government is an HOA. Yeah. And you have the right to decide that. And as long as people also have the right to leave that HOA and go somewhere else, right, you do not have the right yeah. to restrict that somebody has to stay in the area, right? No Berlin right. Walls. Yeah, yeah. Right? So you, so you do have the right to right. set in up America a moral the system. History, in America, is the history of people rowdier and rowdier Protestants leaving town. Yeah. I mean, this is and how going, and going west. And going this west. how we end up with 13 states, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you literally have people who say, I, we don't want you here because of the, your religion. And then they just go and they found Delaware. That's right. right. <laughs> and, and so, and, and thank you for that, Joe Biden. Anyway, um, so, but, the, but yeah. I think that the, the generalized point, which is that we should use as much power as possible on the federal level, which is really what we're talking about. When we talk about the common good conservative versus the libertarian conservative yeah. argument, which is really what we're kind of boiling this down to. Yeah. We're never talking about this at the state level nearly as much as we are at the federal level. I'm not sure. I mean, uh, the, the, because in my local community, if you ban porn in my local community, I really don't have a problem with it. Yeah, I really don't. The problem, with, in fact, I argue specifically for it in my second book. But then, to Matt's point, the problem with the internet is some, some because of technological development, some of these things happen. I agree. By the way, I, I even think well. that with regard to pornography, there's a fairly good argument to be made that it's more like drugs than it is like anything else. Yeah, because yeah, it I, does I, have I, the effect of drugs on the human psyche. Well, this is, has this is but, it, but it's worse because of, it's worse because of how accessible it I, is. I, I tend to, to agree with to you. everyone. Well, I don't think well, any they, of us disagree that it should be less. Accessible. And, and this is one of you know Blake Masters from the Teal Foundation wrote this terrific piece in the Wall Street Journal this week where he basically 
they said, one of the things we have to deal with is they are using our brains as drug uh, dispensers. Yeah. And I think that that's a really interesting yeah. question, especially for all these people who don't believe in God, who are materialists, then essentially they're drug dealers. If so they are I, I guess when it comes to politics, I guess what I'm arguing for is when we think about what does the moral polity look like, we should stop thinking top down, we should start thinking bottom up. I sure. Meaning what does, what does the moral polity look like in your family and then in your local community? And then, yeah. Are you willing to I have a local community that is a common polity with a bunch of other local communities that may disagree with you on some stuff? What, and forces but you then what, in a local so, government, but what happened, the federal level, right? what happened, yeah. what happened is that America is a Protestant country and the Protestant church was overrun by evangelicalism in the, in particular in the second half of the 20th century. And it gutted itself and is in collapse. And what we're living through right now is as Protestantism is collapsing as the moral center of American, let's call it American traditional conservatism for lack of a, we could argue about all these terms, but American conservatism at a moral level has always been a Protestant movement. The Protestant church in America is in collapse. And what we're seeing right now is that there is a there is an urge to now use the government to enforce on us what it never had to enforce on, what we used to basically uh, do ourselves. Do ourselves. Right. And one of the changes that's happening in the American conservative movement is that there's an enormous amount of American conservative Catholics now that has not historically been may, true. May I just make that's not been historically true in American I, I history. I think historically it is true. I think the entire conservative movement has had this bizarre because I agree it's a Protestant country, but I think it's had this Protestant bizarre idea. It's not a Protestant, a Protestant idea, but it's had a bizarre <laughs> Catholic heart. Bill Buckley, Russell Kirk, Phyllis Schlafly, Brent Bozell, all the I mean the list goes on and on and on. The American hardcore conservatives bizarrely have been Catholics. Not Maybe that tells you bizarrely. something. No, it makes, it makes perfect sense because it's a, a Protestant idea and the Protestant idea, like the Catholic idea, has a, a borderline where it starts to become, it starts to fall apart. These, these two forces are actually in a good relationship of, of struggle in this country. I'll tell you what, Historically, I think right now they're not. No, I mean, because, I think, because of what you said. I think right true. now, yeah. right, right now, Catholicism is happening and that, that is encouraging is that the sort of subsidiarity that we're talking about is happening naturally. Yeah. Because what you're seeing is a massive sorting effect. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. We all left California except for except for Walsh. Right. We all, we all left California and now we're all living in Tennessee or Florida or Virginia. Variously, we're moving to except for Drew, more <laughs> more red areas. Virginia's still more red than California. Yeah. Drew was yeah, like, more, Drew was more. like, this place is so left. I got to get out of here and loaded up the truck and no, moved to Washington. But, but you have, no, it's, it's like moving to Mississippi from California. That's, <laughs> right, that's right. But the but the basic idea is that subsidiarity is being chosen by people in how they live. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Where people are moving to communities where they are getting the communities that they want. And this Which, to your earlier point, may actually exacerbate the, the balkanization. Right. It may, it may exacerbate I'm, the balkanization. Well, we now, now we're going to have a choice. This is where I really think the mm -hmm. future of the country is. The choice is going to be, do we want to share that polity? Right. I keep coming back to that yep. question. Do we want to share the polity? If we want to share the polity, you have to have a set of weak rules that we can all agree on at the top, right, that are pretty universal, yeah, which yeah. is why the founders set up the system to require essentially supermajority across nearly all the spectrum in order to get any broad thing done, yeah. right? It required like huge majorities of people, not bare majorities, not 51 votes in the Senate or 50 plus one and 50 plus one in the House. That's it right. required federal state balance. It required the Supreme Court to sign off on things. It required like all of these checks and And if it was really big, it required a constitutional amendment, right? That's right. All of this was designed to create the notion, and the founders were brilliant about this, that at the top level, very few rules. Because if you want to share a polity with people who are very diverse, then you are going to need very few rules at the top. And then, increasingly, yeah. as you go down toward the bottom, you More don't more. mind if there's, like, I don't mind in my local community. My com local community is very orthodox, right? Yeah. It's a very orthodox Jewish community. If there was a regulation among members of my community that on Sabbath you don't drive, 
it would certainly alienate some people. Do I think that there's anything deeply immoral about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm not sure that I see something truly deeply and horrifically immoral about that, so long as people are given the opportunity but to leave. But it would be if yeah. Joe Biden said you That's right. Exactly. right. This yeah. is exactly so here's right. a question uh, kind of along these lines, as long as we're talking about the death of evangelicalism and the sad, sad fact that nobody's yet killed Catholicism, <laughs> is, is the very argument that Biden is making about vax mandates uh, that it's sinful to be unvaccinated? Is he yes. making fundamentally a religious argument? Yeah, I th well, I, I think with another Catholic, Cardinal Manning, I think all polit all human conflict ultimately is theological, and it might be at a very removed level, but when we're having arguments about how we ought to live together, ultimately we're, we're making kind of religious arguments. And, and that, that's what we see from the, from the left always, is that they always make the moral argument. They make the practical argument. Exactly. Every, every policy proposal, they make it on a moral grounds. They say this is just the right thing to yeah. do. And they, they don't bother a lot with the practical stuff. And, 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 then, and then, right, the conservatives will respond, well, this is too expensive, or this is going to cause this practical effect. <laughs> And it's just, it's all, it's almost always the wrong response. We have to, we have to get, it, I, I the fact agree, that we've seeded the, the moral argument. percent I think this right. is so true about it, the way it, we talk. It, that we've, we've seeded the moral argument to um, insane perverts, and basically. We're, and we're and, right. And we're right. Yeah. We've seeded the moral argument, and we are right on moral The grounds. irony, though, we have to point out is Joe Biden is making this moral argument, and he says he's a devout Catholic. And he's he's making a religious argument, but it's not a Catholic argument. He's making a progressive religious. But that, argument. that that makes perfect sense. He argues like a Catholic without Catholicism. Yeah, no. <laughs> right. 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 I mean, he took all the doctrine, he threw it out the window, and he kept all the attitudes. Right. It's like, <laughs> like really, <laughs> you see this with you see the secular Jews all the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like they keep right. the, the kind of the, the, a lot of them will keep this sort of very medoctic is the word like very specific. Yeah articulation of particular issues, but they just got rid of the whole religion thing. They just sort of yeah, kept so the sensibility. True, so true. To Kun Alam. So here's a question from the from the dailywire.com subscribers. You can get your question in at dailywire.com slash subscribe. The vaccine mandate seems like a stepping stone to some very authoritarian legislation. My question, where do you see this leading? Well, I think that if they can do a vaccine mandate simply through the power of the administrative state, it's hard to see how they can't do it with regard to all other forms of health problems. And you've seen how they've done this with nearly everything, right? They declared last year that racism was a public health problem. Yeah, right. They, yeah. they, they say this in Chicago. It's a public health crisis. Yeah. Now, if you can declare that, that post-vaccination, COVID is such a public health crisis that the federal government can cram down mandates on everybody else, why can't, if, if racism is a public health crisis, why can't OSHA cram down rules about CRT in workplaces. Right. And you think all this is bizarre and crazy, except that all of it is bizarre and crazy. Well, right? the, the head of the CDC, right after saying that uh, the eviction moratorium was going to continue, said that she wants to turn her attentions to guns as a public health crisis in America. Yeah, so I, think, I think rock and roll is a public health crisis. <laughs> <laughs> rock and roll's over. <laughs> You're still talking about rock and roll as though Barack Obama didn't happen. Honestly, it's for another day, but Barack Obama destroyed rock and roll. You have convinced me of this. There I was agree. rock and roll, then there was Barack Obama. Now there yes. is no rock and roll. Yep. Because, so he did something good. But because <laughs> rock, and roll, rock and roll was about white male angst. White yeah. male teenage yeah. angst. Yeah, yeah. And then Barack Obama came and along and said that- stealing a lot of his from better black music. Yeah, yeah then, really. Well, <laughs> Barack Obama came along and said white, white, young white men aren't allowed to have angst. Yeah. They're not allowed mm -hmm. to, uh, to basically express their dissatisfaction because they're so- Toxic. Toxic. Yeah. And so uh, truly rock and roll just stopped. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, I was hoping to see Norm MacDonald on the book club. Uh, so now we've turned- I, I should have read ahead uh, because I actually do want to talk about Norm, did Michael uh, ever hear any of Norm's thoughts on crime and punishment, mm -hmm. Michael? Yeah, I, w I will say, you know, I, I wish I could say that I was a close, dear friend of Norm Macdonald. I really, I, I've been a fan and admirer of his since since I can remember, you know, since I was a kid. And uh, 
I, I did get to talk to him. I mean, you, Jeremy and I went to see one of his shows and we wore, we ha- actually had custom hats made from his book. Like it was a total, and he looked at us kind of in the crowd and like, who are these crazy people? And, but I noticed this strange thing, which is when Norm got on Twitter, he followed me like really early on. And I thought, this yeah. is so weird, you know, and, but I never abused it. I didn't want to DM him. I was so in awe of the man. He was the funniest man that, uh, that was alive in our age. And one day he sent out a tweet about how he was in pain or something. And I, I feared that he was d- depressed or something. So I sent him a note and I said, hey, pal, I- I'm in awe of you. I don't, I don't want, but if you want to talk. And, and we had a very long exchange. We had this long correspondence, like 10 paragraph DMs, you know, and it was, it was about religion. And uh, I, I, I'm not going to, uh, you know, I'm not, I don't intend private, yeah. revealing it. It's private, private correspondence. But I, I the, the man, he did this thing and he did it publicly too, where he'd say, you know, Michael, man, you're really educated. You know me, I'm just an old chunk of coal and I'm totally uneducated. And then he would use a word that I didn't know yeah. that I, which means he had, his reading was so deep. And, uh, he, uh, the, the one thing I will say about our correspondence is I am convinced the man had not only incredible wisdom, but a, a deep, profound, abiding, lifelong faith. I am t- 100% convinced of that. And so we, uh, the last part of our correspondence was he was going to come on the book show and do uh, Crime and Punishment or one of the Russian novels. Actually, one of his most famous jokes is based on the death of Ivan Ilyich, which I ended up doing on the book show with Matt. And uh, he, he wouldn't come on and he said he didn't want to, during the coronavirus, he didn't want to go into a studio. And I thought this was just him being eccentric. Now, looking back, it's clear he was in uh, cancer treatments. Yeah. 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 Michael, we actually have that joke uh, queued up. Let's play it for, for everyone. A moth goes into a podiatrist's office. A moth goes into a podiatrist's office. Right. You are correct. <laughs> a moth goes into a podiatrist's office mm-hmm. and... Uh, the podiatrist's office says, what's the problem? And the moth says, what's the problem? Where do I begin, man? He goes, I go to work for uh, Gregory Olinovich, and uh, all day long I work. <laughs> Honestly, Doc, I don't even know what I'm doing anymore. I don't even know if Gregory Olinovich knows. He only knows that he has power over me, and that seems to bring him happiness. But I don't know. I wake up in a malaise and I, I walk here and there. And the podiatrist says, oh, yeah? And the moth goes, yes. And he goes, uh, at night I, I sometimes wake up and I turn to some old lady in my bed that's on my arm. A lady that I once loved, Doc. I, I don't know where to turn to. My youngest, Alexandria. She fell in the, in, the, in the cold of last year. Mm-hmm. The cold took her down, as it did many of us. <laughs> and my other boy... <laughs> and this is the hardest pill to swallow, Doc. My other boy, Gregaro <laughs> Ivinolitovich. I no longer love him. <laughs> As much as it pains me to say, when I look in his eyes, all I see is the same cowardice that I, that I catch when I take a glimpse of my own face in the mirror. If only the cowardice was stronger, then perhaps... Perhaps I could bring myself to reach over to that cocked and loaded gun that lays on the bedside behind me. 
and in this hellish facade once How long a drive was this? <laughs> do you live in the valley? Where do you live? Please, sorry. He says, Doc. Sometimes I feel like a spider, even though I'm a moth. Just barely hanging on to my web with an everlasting fire underneath me. I'm not feeling good. And so the, moth, the, the doctor says, Moth, man, you're troubled. But you should be seeing a psychiatrist. Why on earth did you come here? And then the moth said, because the light was on. <laughs> I have to tell you, I have to tell you, I, this is in his, uh, in his memoir, his wonderful memoir, and I listened to it in the car. I, and I'm not joking, I had to pull off the road three times because yeah. I was going to die. I was laughing so hard <laughs> and driving in L.A. at the same time. And he, it goes on and on. And it, it reflected also, I mean, just on top of this, a deep knowledge of Russian literature, which he really had. And, and you know, I, Crime and Punishment is the book that essentially made me a Christian. I mean, that's the book that changed my life. That book changed my life. I mean, I was 19 years old. I read that book and all the relativism that was rising through the university system that I was in. I thought, oh, it's all wrong. <laughs> I, I get it. It's all wrong. You know, and, and I, it, it genuinely changed my life and put me on a 30-year track toward Christianity. And that joke, I just thought it was just, just the, it, it, I don't know, it's a profound joke, but it's hilarious. He, he had an almost religious uh, commitment to the joke. Yeah. And I yeah, actually yeah. think it held him back in his career. I mean, oh, very sure. famously, he was, an artist. Yeah. he was fired from SNL because yeah. he wouldn't stop telling the funniest jokes, which at the time were about O.J. Simpson. About O.J. Simpson, yeah. <laughs> they, would, they said, you, we will keep paying you, but you have to stop making that joke. He would bomb deliberately in settings where he thought the funnier punchline yeah. was for him to fail. Rose to Bob Saget was Ro amazing. Unbelievable. Yeah. He, he, uh, and what's funny is that a guy that committed to the joke, a guy who would put the joke ahead of his own career, ahead of his own happiness in many ways, I think, uh, here at the end, carried around this cancer for nine years, apparently didn't even tell his family, mm. was willing to carry all of that on himself. So told that cancer. the joke, yeah, told cancer, so that the joke wouldn't suffer. And yet, I think that this is the most united, if you look at social media right now, the most politically united uh, of anything, there's the most political unity yeah. around the death of Norm Macdonald that I've seen about the death of any public figure in the last 10 years. Yeah. Universally beloved, left and right. And this is an excerpt from his book that I, uh, I think it's, his greatest work is uh, based on a true story, a memoir. And this is Norm Macdonald talking about meeting God outside of uh, the Luxor Casino in Las Great. Vegas. Said, I find my way through the casino, and in a moment I'm on the strip. There's a dry chill that begins to freeze my naked face, and the buildings of iron and glass feel as immortal as the ancient streets they sit upon. I look above the sun shining amid the blue sky and the white, white clouds as they cast a pall of futility over the man-made monuments in their sickly neon lights. And I stand by the pyramid of Luxor and gaze upon the firmament above, and in a sudden, the sky becomes a face, and I look away in fear and shame. It's the face of God, and he speaks, and his voice is both your voice and mine at once. And he speaks unto me, why do you not look at me, neither yesterday nor today? And so I remove my dirty work hat, and I look upon his, him, and I study his countenance. Now people always wonder, is, is God a man or a woman? Is he black or white or yellow or brown? But I'm here to tell you that none of that silly stuff matters. 
He's a white guy, by the way. He's <laughs> <laughs> a true master craftsman, and I doubt, uh, it sounds cliche to say, we will not see his oh, like. Oh, we will not see his like for a long time. We'll like again. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us. As always, we're very happy to have had you, and uh, we're very pleased uh, that our dailywire.com subscribers make it possible for us to do this show. If you're not one, we'd like to invite you to become a member right now. You can head over to dailywire.com slash subscribe. If you use the promo code do not comply, you'll get 25% off your membership. Thanks for being here, and as a reminder, we won't comply, and neither should you. If you're watching live on dailywire.com, please stick around because the newest episode of Candace is right around the corner. You can watch it here at 9 p.m. Eastern at 6 p.m. Pacific. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time live at the Ryman Auditorium. Daily Wire Backstage is produced by Mathis Glover. Executive producer is me, Jeremy Boring. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Our production manager is Pavel Wadowski. Studio and equipment management is by Patrick Kennedy. And broadcast engineering is by Mark Herman. Editing is by Jim Nickel. Audio is mixed by Mike Horamina. And our audio assistant is Israel McFarland. Playback is operated by McKenna Waters. Hair and makeup by Nika Geneva. Daily Wire Backstage is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2021.